Father, just think about uh, just young, young people and uh, just uh, having a, a desire for Christ and to see so much of a life ahead. God, that we have just sought to provide a place here that's a joyful, happy uh, place that's filled with a genuine knowledge of you and a genuine uh, worship of you. And uh, God, just would pray for these um, students, uh, especially Stephanie's my daughter, and I, I've known um, Colin and Gage for many, many years, uh, over a decade, each of them. Um, and Father, just would pray that you would bless them as they graduate today, as they segue into uh, a summer of work, and then uh, in the fall, heading off to their different places to just learn and gain education. To, in which to, to grow and would pray that they would grow to, to serve you and love you with all their hearts for all their lives. I think about how college oftentimes a chance to, to really make faith their own and would pray that that would come to pass in, in, in each of their lives, that just they would be apart from mom and apart from dad, apart from pressures of, of just culture, that they would choose Christ and trust in him uh, in every way. So bless them, O oh, oh Lord, we pray. And just even today, as they all have a graduation ceremony together, may it be a, a joyous time. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thanks for being flexible, guys. <laughs> all right. Well, I just say I love conversion stories. Gary loved the story that you told. The uh, Moroccan who, who came to Christ. Just love different types of stories. Everyone's story is, is different about how they... How they come to Jesus. Uh, I, I know a friend of mine who, who came to Christ simply just reading the Bible. Like he didn't grow up in a Christian home, but somehow he got a Bible. And he would go to the library consistently just read it and came to believe and trust in Jesus. I've seen many people head off to college, um, not Christians before they went to college. And then they go to college and finally it's their chance to be on their own. And, and um, some growing up in the church, some not growing up in the church, they said, I want to figure out what this Christianity stuff is all about. And so they joined up with some kind of campus ministry. And at this formative time in their life, they, they come to Christ. They repent of their sins and they, they, they place their trust in the Savior. Um, I, I've seen those who are on the brink of divorce, problems in their marriage, and they're just desperate. They're looking for something. And someone comes and helps invite them to church. And they... They hear the gospel of forgiveness of sins through Jesus and their lives are forever changed. Uh, I've seen, heard stories and spoke with people whose business was doing super well and, and they're going along and then their business collapses and they're desperate and they don't know where else to turn and they, they turn to Christ and God proves faithful or some health, health issue in their life. I see this especially in Nepal and India where I've traveled for some missionary work where people are, are sick and in need of help and they turn to their shamans and their shamans are no help and then they turn to God and they see healing and they know that he who heals physically can also heal spiritually and so they come and, and I love hearing those stories but one of my favorite stories uh, to hear that, that I've ever heard is the story of, of this man. Who knows who this man is? Yes. Charles Spurgeon. This is when he was a young man. I don't know how old he was in this picture, but here he is. He's preaching like he, he did. Um, so the youngest picture I could find of him. Um, but this is a, his story of his conversion is really a, it's a great, it's, it's a great conversion story. He grew up in England with a great spiritual heritage. His, his dad was a preacher. His grandfather was a preacher. His great-grandfather was a preacher. His great-great-grandfather was a preacher. And with such a legacy, he knew the Bible he knew the gospel from an early age. He heard it anyway. He said, the light was there, but I was blind. 
And uh, he said, and I quote, for years as a child, I tried to learn the way of salvation. I, I read my Bible and I read it earnestly. And I had been taught by my mother and father and others. And, and I think I'd heard the gospel. And yet somehow, he said, it, it, it came a new revelation to him when he heard the gospel clearly said that just says you need to believe and live. And Charles Spurgeon, any typical church kid, knowledgeable of the Bible in the head, and yet lacking the knowledge of God in the heart. Till one snowy day, January 6th, 1850, when he was 15 years old, he was on his way to worship at church. He was living in London in the 1850s, and he's on his way walking to church, and the snow proved too much. And then he looked off to the side, and, and there was this primitive Methodist chapel he said, well, I can't get to the church I normally attend, so I think I'll just duck in here. There were about a dozen people, his testimony says, maybe 15 in this place. Because of the snow, the regular pastor wasn't there. He was snowed in. And so just a, a layman was, was really thrust into service to, to preach. And he was probably a bit unprepared. He wasn't anticipating preaching. But when the pastor didn't show up, he, just, he stood up and began to preach. His text was Isaiah 45, verse 22. Which says, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. Isaiah 45, 22. And listen to Spurgeon's testimony, what, what that man preached or what happened. He says, the preacher began thus. He says, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now, look and don't take a great deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It just means look. A man need, need not go to college to learn to look. The biggest fool can still look. A man need, needn't be worth a thousand dollars, a thousand a year, a thousand pounds probably a year, to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. I, he then Spurgeon says, he said in his broad Essex, if I could quote Essex, I would do it. I don't know exactly what Essex is, but um, some kind of English accent. I'm terrible with accents. But he says, I, many on ye are looking to yourselves and not looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Look to Christ. As he says, look to me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. He said, and this would be helpful for us who've been going through Acts and just thinking about just the, the life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension. This is what he says. He says, look unto me. I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I'm dead and buried. Look unto me. I'm risen again. Look unto me. I'm ascended to heaven. Look unto me. I'm sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Oh, poor sinner. Look unto me. Look unto me. His message was about 10 minutes long. Spurgeon said, he said after 10 minutes, he was at the end of his tether. And with only about a dozen people there, this preacher knew who the visitor was. And so he, he addressed the visitor. And, you know, we've got some visitors here, some Stokites friends. So it'd be very typical of this. You're coming and look, young man, you look very miserable, very miserable indeed. You need to look. To, I'm sorry to put you on the spot. I just kind of acting. I want to be said, look to Jesus. You're going to be miserable in life. You're going to be miserable in death. Unless you look to him, look unto him and be ye saved. And then as Spurgeon said, this primitive preacher lifted up his hands and shouted, as only a primitive Methodist minister can do. I have no idea what a primitive Methodist minister was in the 1850s. But he said, young man, look to Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. That was Spurgeon's testimony. And then here he described it. He says this. He says, 
I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. Like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. And so it was with me. I've been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I almost looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone, the darkness rolled away. And at that moment I saw the sun and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith that looks alone to him. Well, a few months later, then, when the weather got warmer, he was baptized in a river uh, there in London. And uh, just with his heritage of, of pastors, he'd heard so many sermons. He had been in the understanding of that. He preached his very first sermon at age 16. His giftedness was obvious to all at age 18. He was pastoring a church for the first time at age 20. He was called to uh, the, the historic new Park Street Chapel in London, which historically John Gill was a pastor there, a great Puritan. is a is a big church. And uh, just within a, uh, a couple years, I think it grew to be the largest church in London easily. And he ministered there for decades. Um, in, in fact, even here's a picture of him. The, the crowds were too big for the church building. That soon he, he preached at Essex Hall, preaching to thousands of people without a microphone. He had this amazing voice. He went on to become known as the Prince of preachers, arguably the the best preacher the world has ever known. And it all started when he was heading to church and the snowstorm prevented him from getting there and he diverted to the small meeting among strangers. And and I love that story of, of, of conversion because it shows what God can do in an instant to turn someone who's a, who's a sinner and lost turning someone to himself and to use him greatly. And I love especially the story there about how the, how the preacher was unknown to Spurgeon. Spurgeon never met him his, his entire life. A couple of people came forward and said, oh, I was that preacher. Like three, three men came forward and Spurgeon was like, no, you're not the guy. Uh, you're not the guy. I think someone wants to take credit for, oh, I was the guy, right, who, who saw you come to Christ and now you're preaching to thousands. But, but Spurgeon never knew. Never knew this man. And Spurgeon in his day impacted millions in his lifetime as his manuscripts of his sermons were sent even in those days telegraphed over the sea to America. People read his sermons. His sermons were published every week for for years, even like 25 years after his death. They had just had enough stored up that every week came out one of his sermons. You can can read his sermons uh, if you want just online. Uh, They're good. And he's impacted millions in our day as people have read Spurgeon and come to love him. But as much as I love this conversion story, and as much as I think it is one of the greatest stories, it's not the greatest conversion story. The greatest conversion story is found in our text of Scripture this morning, Acts chapter 9. If you haven't turned there, I invite you to open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. This is the story, the famous story of of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. The title of my message this morning is The Greatest Conversion Story. And I say it's the greatest story for several reasons. First of all, it's in the Bible. If you're going to have the, the greatest story, a conversion to God, I, I think it's got to be in the Bible. So you just got to pick whichever one's the, the greatest one in the Bible. And this one is. It's got to be an inspired conversion story. Second, this story is told more times in the Bible than any other conversion story in the Bible. 
anyone else coming to Christ in the Bible. Um, In fact, it's told here in in Acts chapter 9. It's going to be told in Acts chapter 22. It's going to be told in Acts chapter 26. Paul will allude to it in Galatians chapter 1 and in Philippians chapter 3 and in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, just to name a few times, or really talks about coming from darkness into light. Um, I think finally, right, this story is a great conversion story. It's the greatest because it speaks of extremes. Uh, Paul, just Saul, right, was the greatest enemy of the church, then becoming the greatest advocate of the church. Going from the lowest of low, persecuting Christians, even to the highest of high, and being privileged to write almost a quarter of the New Testament. Listen to what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, Formerly I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, and I was an insolent opponent, a violent aggressor against the church. He says, But I received mercy. And he says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost. Paul considered himself the foremost of sinners because he blasphemed against the Lord and he sought actively to, per- to, to persecute the church of Christ. He became the greatest of saints, laboring, as uh, Gary read for us in 1 Corinthians 15, he labored more than all the apostles, more than Peter and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew, more than all of them. It says, the grace of God was working so much in me, I, I labored more than all of them. He discipled many. He planted countless churches. And as I said, he wrote nearly a fourth of the New Testament. So I consider this story the greatest conversion story in all the Bible. The greatest conversion story, I think, ever told. So let's, let's read this conversion story, Acts chapter 9, beginning of verse 1. But Saul... Still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that he found, if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Now, There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision, in a vision, a man named Ananias. Come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord. I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from all the chief priests to bind all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, 
The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me to you that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he arose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Here's my first point. My first point is simply this. It is the road. That is the road, the famous road on the the road to Damascus. This is the road that Saul was traveling upon as he met the risen Christ in this vision. This is a parallel, really, that primitive street, that primitive Methodist chapel where Spurgeon first looked to Christ. And what brought Spurgeon that chapel was a storm. And what brought Saul to this road was his intense hatred for Christians and for Christ. And look at verse 1. It says, but Saul, okay, by the way, just Saul is another way to, to say Paul. Saul was his Hebrew name and Paul was his Greek name. Uh, when he was in Hebrew context, the, his name is Saul. When he's in Greek context, his name is Paul. A little bit like me. I remember in high school, I took a Spanish class. And when I was in my Spanish class, I was called Esteban. But when I was outside of my Spanish class, I was called Steve the Magnificent. No, I just called Steve. <laughs> But just that's what it is, like in different contexts. I, he, had, he had two different names. He had a Hebrew name and he had a Greek name. So here it is, Saul, and sometimes I'll slip and I'll say Paul, but he's, he's in a Jewish context here, so he's Saul. He says, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples. He's still doing this. And so that you say, okay, well, if he's still doing that, that means he was doing that before. And when was he doing that before? In chapter 8 is when we're introduced to the man. Um, at, at the end of chapter 7, we see that the witnesses were laying their garment to the feet of a young man named Saul. And, and we find him here in, in chapter 8. We see him approving of the execution of Stephen, who was stoned to death for preaching the gospel. And two verses later, we see Saul ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. And this is what Paul was doing. And this is what Paul still is doing and that's the 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 thrust here of chapter 9 verse 1 but Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord is what he was doing such was the hatred of Saul towards those who followed Jesus I mean he didn't merely disdain them in his heart and his mind as if you know as if kind of seeing someone and hating them but maybe being polite on the outside that that wasn't Paul And, and Paul wasn't even one who hated people and just spoke against them and he said, oh, I hate that person. I hate that person. It wasn't, it wasn't even that. Uh, no, it was, it was that he actively pursued them with his feet. I mean, he walked towards them and he hunted them down and he brought them into prison as heretics where I would suspect that they were beaten for claiming the name of Jesus and that some of them were killed for their faith. And that's what makes Saul's actions so, so vile is that he believed that he was doing this on behalf of God. He was exactly wrong. He, he went after God's people thinking that he was doing the work of God because he was a Pharisee. Right? He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was zealous for the tradition of the elders when in fact, however, he was doing the work of the devil. That's what Paul did in Jerusalem in chapter 8 and that's what he continued to do here in chapter 9. But he's continuing here beyond Jerusalem. Chapter 8 was Jerusalem. And here it now goes beyond. And we see that when he's still breathing threats of murder against the disciples of our Lord, he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues 
at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, the high priest in Jerusalem had no authority in Damascus. Damascus is like 140 miles away. It's up north, and today it's in the, um, the country of Syria. It's still there. You can go to, to Damascus as well. About 140 miles in those days. You could walk about 20 miles a day. It would be like a week's journey in order to get up to Damascus. And so what was this high priest? What kind of rule does he have way up there? He doesn't have much, but he has some sway in the synagogues with the Jewish religious leaders. And so Saul got these letters in hand that would give him permission if they found anybody following the way, that is, the way was an early name which they called uh, Christianity. Uh, The first Christians are not named until Acts chapter 11. Uh, but here it's just the way. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so they're, they're following the way. It's just a, if they're following Jesus might be another, uh, another way to say that. But he was going to go up there, if they're followers of the way, bring them back down to Jerusalem. Have you thought about how difficult the task that'd be? I mean, it, it's one thing to capture someone in Jerusalem, you know, and carry them 400 yards to the prison or maybe even a mile across town to the prison. I mean, they can come kicking and screaming and you can get them handcuffed and, and, and get them that way. But to bring them, carry them 140 miles, that's another thing. It just take a ton of time, a ton of effort. And I, I don't know if they're walking up there, they're going to leave this entourage uh, of people back walking with them or maybe they got some prison trailer sort of thing, chariot. I, I'm not exactly sure, but to force them 140 miles to go with you as prisoners for following Jesus, that was, that was quite the effort. <clears throat> but the effort that it took put on display Paul's tremendous zeal of how hard he was, how hard his heart was against the Lord. Yet, here's the good news of our text. And this is why this makes it the greatest conversion story ever told, is that, is that I don't care how hard your heart is, God can soften a heart. I mean, he can soften it in an instant, as he did here with the Apostle Paul. You, you, so you just think in your minds, right? Who is it that is in my life just as hard as hard can be? There is hope for him because God can change that heart. Maybe you have that heart today. I have hope that God can change your heart today. And, and it's interesting that... Um, he doesn't need even a, a preacher to do it. He, do, he, doesn't, he doesn't need me to go and change that heart. Like, I can't change a heart. It's interesting, I've told you before, that's what makes a pastor's job so hard, is that I'm called to do the impossible. I'm called to lead hearts to worship God, and yet I cannot change a heart. Only God can do that. He doesn't need me, he doesn't need you. He can do it very well on his own. And that's exactly what we see him doing right here in verse 3. He saves Paul even without a preacher. Verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. This was a divine light sent from God. And, and, and what this looked like or how it was, we have no idea. All I just say is it was miraculous. Paul was approaching the city and then highly engulfed in this light. We'll find out later this light was so bright that it blinded him. But I, I just want to address your attention here. How It is interesting in verse 3 that This light came as he approached Damascus. See, God knew full well what Saul was doing, going up to Damascus to persecute Christians. He he knew full well when Paul received this letter from the hands of of the high priest, and he walked, he began his journey. God could have caused this light when Paul was three steps out of town going to Damascus. 
He could have caused it after one day or three days. If it took him seven days, why did God wait till right before he was approaching Damascus? You could probably see the city, probably laid out before him. He's just about to enter in, and boom, that's when God's light comes. I think it's a demonstration of God's patience. I think it's a demonstration of God's working. He's going to let Paul stew in his mind, Saul stew in his mind, just about what he's doing and his evil intent and how I want to just get those people and grab them and bring them off to jail. When he's walking for seven days, or if, if he was riding a donkey or a horse or some sort of big jail chariot, you know, it still would have taken a couple days in order to get up there. It's still a long time. God was showing his patience to Saul, letting him see and understand the depths of his sin. And so I say today, right, when God saves a sinner and breaks in on their life, he doesn't do it right away. He'll often let people dwell in their sin to let them see and understand how wrong their way is and how much they need Jesus, that they might see the depth of their own sin, that when God breaks in, they'll see the broad expanse of God's grace to them. Well, not only did Paul see a light, he also heard a voice, verse 4. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's not every day that you walk along a road and have this bright light come and you're struck down to the ground and then hear a voice speak to you, but that's what happened to, to Paul. And this question comes, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's really a, a great question. Why? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Why have you gone to the high priest? Why have you got these letters? Why have you traveled all the way up here to Damascus? Why are you doing this? And Paul would probably, could probably respond in some regards. If you respond to a voice from heaven somehow, and well, I'm zealous for you, and these people are blaspheming you, and so I'm going to get at them. But I think particularly penetrating here is just as Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? See, Jesus here is showing solidarity to those who follow him. To persecute a follower of Jesus is to persecute Jesus himself. It's because we're members of the body of Christ as believers. If you harm a believer, it's like you're, you're harming the very body of Jesus. And what, what, what a great thought, isn't it? That to harm me means, right, if someone's persecuting me or someone's persecuting you, it's as if they are persecuting Jesus himself. And that's always been the case with God's people. Remember when the people of Israel asked Samuel for a king? Samuel's like, well, we got judges, right? We got rulers. God is our king. He said, no, 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 we want a king like the other nations. And Samuel then sought the Lord and said, God, they're asking for a king. Is this right or not? And uh, God told Samuel, he said for Samuel eight seventeen, they have not rejected you. But they have rejected me from being king over them. Right? See, it's not human people that they're rejecting. They're, they're rejecting me. And rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And if, people, if you share the gospel with someone and they reject you, right, they, they think that what you shared with them, the offer of forgiveness through Jesus, they think that's crazy. Right? They reject and rebel against you. Really, they're re- rebelling against the Lord. And that's what Saul is doing here. When Saul is persecuting the church, he was persecuting Jesus. Now, I don't think Saul understood this right away. He didn't even know who it was speaking to him. Verse 5, and he said, Who are you, Lord? And, and I don't know how exactly to say that or inflect that, but sort of like, his voice coming, Who are you? Well, you're coming from heaven, so you must be Lord. Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, 
whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you are to do. And I think these words probably hit him like a ton of bricks. Here he was thinking he's going to go and do the Lord's business. The Lord speaks to him and the Lord says, I'm Jesus. A reference to the deity of Jesus, of course. But at this, wor- at this, at this point, I'm sure Saul's world was rocked. Uh, you know, he, he, here he was. He was persecuting the way because he thought that's what God wanted. But now, no, God was showing him on the other side. It's like everything turned. It's like a criminal being caught red-handed in the midst of a, a sting operation. Right? A, 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 a criminal has been dealing with an under, undercover cop. And then all of a sudden the cop reveals who he is. He says, no, I'm not your drug dealer. I'm a cop. Like, whoa. And in that moment, like you just think about all realities, like, whoa, just totally twisted around. And I'm sure that was going on with, with Paul, like trying to, his head spinning, trying to understand what it's meant. And Jesus didn't let Saul think too long. He gave him direction in verse six, rise and enter the city and you'll be told what to do. So it's not a lot of instruction, but he says, okay, get up, go to, into Damascus. He was close after all. I remember he was approaching the city. So he was, he was right there. And, uh, and really, in actuality, Saul could do nothing less than this anyway because he was blinded. And if he was blinded, he really couldn't persecute Christians. And, and it says in verse 7, it's interesting, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And his traveling companions, by the way, were, were fellow, whatever, persecutors along with Saul. Saul, I think, was the one instigating this whole situation. But, but they heard and saw all that was going, going on. And Saul rose from the ground... And although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. He was blinded. And so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. So you just picture, he's blind. And, and you know, when, you, when you're blind and someone's leading you, you close your eyes, kids. and you do, It's kind of a hard, a hard go. But these guys all saw what would happen, saw this, this light, heard this, heard this voice. And I think all this points to how miraculous these things were. Because everyone who had been traveling with Saul heard the voice. And heard the conversation that, that followed. But Saul was the only one blinded by this light. So there, there's some, some miraculous things going on here. So it's not like some, you can explain this in any way. Like some mediate, meteor comes in. Or some cosmic flash of, of light. Or some solar flash. Or some explosion. Or some, some really bright met, metallic stuff off the countryside. That Paul happened to go and get blinded by. No, this was miraculous. That God came down in this light. Because he was pursuing Saul really brings us to understand what conversion is how supernatural conversion is it's a miracle when anyone turns to jesus because we're all born with sinful hearts which naturally live in rebellion against the lord we are incapable of changing ourselves we are not we need god to have a work in our hearts think about the 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 metaphors used for conversion jesus said you must be born again you didn't choose to be born the first time you don't really choose to be born the second time either uh, we're, we're called a new creation, right? You, you can't create yourself. You can't change yourself, right? It, it's just God is the one who, who changes us. We need God to intervene, to soften our hearts, to open our eyes, to change us from deep within. It's a miraculous work of God. Now, God doesn't always do it with blinding lights from heaven. He, he doesn't always do it with voice from heaven. In fact, I would not be surprised if this was the only time that God used a, a giant flash of light surrounding all around people and a voice from heaven to convert anybody. This might be the only time in all that, that this exactly happened, right? Using these things, right? Perhaps other ways, right? 
But, but there are times, right, when the Lord used a, used a thin-looking, feeble-voiced layman who, uh, on a snowy day, to preach a simple text for ten minutes to see people come to Jesus. There are times when, when God uses a financial crisis or a near-death experience to bring people to Christ. And I have, doubt, I have no doubt that COVID-19 will bring many people to, to Christ as people think about right, what, what it means. Why am I so scared of this disease? Why, I'm scared because I'm, I'm afraid to die. And I'm afraid to die. I mean, I, there's more to life than just this life. And you need to think about how fragile life is here on earth and seek, seek a, something better, seek something eternal. But the point is the Lord works in miraculous ways. We all need a miracle in our lives where we're going to see God. Yeah, a few years ago, I wrote a book. It's called uh, Passing by the Field. And um, I think most of you have this book. Some of you, if you're newer to church, you don't have it. Just talk to me and I'll, I'll get you a copy. I'll order some copies. I'm, I'm out of them right now except for this one. Um, but they're, they're, just, they're just stories of just looking at life and, and bringing spiritual parallels to them. And, and I love this story about how the righteous need a miracle. You like that picture? I'm not sure if you can see it. Turn open your book to 38 when you get home. But here's little David, my, my son, the righteous, the church, the church boy needs a miracle. And I write this. It says, Christians who grew up attending church and believing in Christ at a young age often feel their testimony is, quote-unquote, boring. They lack a dramatic story of Jesus miraculously rescuing them out of a dark and sinful past. They are sorrowful that they can't tell a similar story of the power of God to save them from their sin. But there's no need for despair. I went to high school with a friend of mine whose life couldn't have been more opposite than mine. I grew up in a stable, loving, church-attending family. The path to following Christ was natural. My friend, on the other hand, grew up in a home filled with problems. In describing his drug problem, he said to me, I wasn't high on drugs all the time in high school. He says, I was only high when I was awake. He says, uh, we, he went to college and found Jesus Christ who forgave him all his sins. He went on to seminary and to serve as a pastor. And I remember well the time that he came to our home for lunch. He gave me a great perspective on my salvation and his salvation. And he said to me, Steve, it's not a miracle that I became a Christian. My life was so messed up that I knew I needed help. So I searched for help and I happened to find Jesus. But you, Steve, you needed a miracle you had everything you ever wanted in your earthly family. You had parents who loved you. Your siblings were loving and supportive. You had sufficient financial resources. In an earthly sense, you had no need for Jesus, which is the problem of many Americans today. We don't need Jesus. He says, um, you had no reason even to search for him. It's a miracle that you recognized your need for a savior. And after hearing my friend's description of my salvation, I was encouraged afresh at God's working in my life. It was a miracle that he opened my eyes to see my need for him. Jesus said, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus didn't come to save the self-righteous Pharisee. Instead, he came to save the one deep in his sin. Now, certainly it's a miracle when those who are engaged in a great sin turn to Christ. But it's also a miracle whenever a quote-unquote righteous person turns to Christ. So if you have grown up in church and have loved Jesus from an early age, may this perspective encourage you to tell your miraculous story of God's grace in your life. And so just a reminder to all of us, 
right, that we need a miracle, all of us. And so the question is, have you experienced that miracle? Are you converted? Do you know what it means to walk in your sin and yet ultimately then to turn to Christ? Have you experienced the new birth? Have you experienced the new creation? Have you looked to Christ? Have you found forgiveness in Him? Have you found your joy in Him? That's what we see Paul in verse 9. Not saved yet, but seeking the Lord for three days without sight, neither ate nor drank. For three days, just trying to sort it out. He's, he's confused. And, and we'll see at the end of verse 11 is that what he was doing is he was praying. Praying to the Lord for these three days, trying to understand what this vision meant. Trying to understand what it meant that he's persecuting Jesus there in Damascus where he is. But he can't go out because he's blind. Well, now beginning in in verse 10, we see what I'm calling the visions. The visions. Verse 10, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. Now Ananias is a common name in, in Saul's day. In Acts 5, remember Ananias and Sapphira? Same name. This isn't the same guy, though, because Ananias was dead by this time because he lied to the Holy Spirit. Remember that story? Um, Also, in uh, Acts 23 and 24, we're going to meet Ananias, the high priest. But that's that's not this Ananias because Ananias was a a high priest of the Jewish. This is Ananias who's a believer, a disciple, as it says. Um, What's also interesting here about Ananias is what caused me to think about the story of Spurgeon's conversion is that we don't know anything about this Ananias other than what verses 10 through 19 tell us. He's like this obscure man who comes up in this passage and that's all like the feeble-voiced layman uh, who preached to that chapel long ago to Charles Spurgeon. All we know of that man is what Spurgeon remembers and all we know of Ananias is right here of what we read. All All we read of him, he's a disciple at Damascus, that is a follower of Jesus. He's a follower of the way. He is a Christian. Now, how he became a Christian, we don't know. Uh, he may have been in Jerusalem. And I uh, remember at the, the stoning of Stephen, then everyone scattered except the apostles who stayed in Jerusalem. He may have heard the gospel there in Jerusalem, become part of the church, and then one of those who scattered. Or it may be that one of those who scattered spoke the gospel to him in Damascus. We don't know. We don't even know that about him. That could have been either way. But we do know that Ananias believed in Christ. He trusted him and was a follower of him. And the Lord appeared to him in a vision. And really, there are two visions in this vision, if you catch it. That's why I said visions. My second point. He says this. The Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now, this sounds a lot like Acts chapter 10 that we're going to see in the next couple of weeks. Acts chapter 10, there were two visions. There was a vision when the Lord appeared to Cornelius in Caesarea and told him to go to Joppa to look for this Simon who is called Peter. He's staying at the home of Simon and Tanner by the sea. So he's describing he's going to send these men right, to go to, to Joppa. And you find this Tanner by the sea named Simon. And Simon's going to be there. And, and sure enough, as they left three four days earlier, they got there. And Simon was up on the roof. 
And, and he sees this vision, the sheep coming down and these animals and eating. And then they come together. And, and when they come together and they compare their stories, they say, oh, the Lord had a vision for you and he had a vision for me. And these visions match. God must be in this. And I think that's exactly what we have here. The Lord comes to Ananias and tells him to go see Saul because Saul has already seen this vision that this man named Ananias, that's why it's you, you're going to go and you're going to lay hands on him. And when you lay your hands on him, he's going to receive his sight. And when these two visions come together, it's going to be clear that the events are from the Lord. It's going to help Paul with his clarity about whether was this just something I happened to see or, or is it a hallucination or is it what? And, but then when these visions come, it's like double confirmation. This really is the Lord working in your life. And then we come to verse 13. Now, it's hard for us to understand verse 13 because we know the whole story of Paul and the whole story of Saul and how he's, he's going to come and be this great. And now, yes, he's a believer, but at this point in time with Ananias in verse 13, all that he heard positive from Saul is that he's praying. And he knew a lot about Saul of Tarsus. I mean, he knew that he ravaged the church in Jerusalem, and he knew, somehow by his response, that Saul was coming up to Damascus to do that very thing. How he knew these things, I'm not exactly sure, but I think word traveled faster, you know, than those who were walking up there. Like someone said, hey, hey, hide, because Saul's coming, Saul is coming. So he heard about this, and so the response of verse 13 is, try to put yourself in his shoes, is what I'm saying. I think it's a totally reasonable response. And I said, Lord... I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. So he said, I I know about this man. I I, I know what bad he did in Jerusalem. And I know that he's coming here to do the same evil. In fact, I even know about these papers the high priest signed for him, that he could take any of us and bind us to bring to Jerusalem as a prisoner. The implicit assumption is that, and I says, Lord, that's not a safe thing to do. To go and find this man. But the Lord explains. Verse 15. The Lord said to him. Continuing this vision. This dialogue back and forth. The Lord says go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine. To carry my name before the Gentiles. And kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer. For my name. In other words. God is saying this. Jesus is saying this. And I, say, I know your concerns. But I have a plan for God's life. For Paul's life. I'm going to use him in great ways. He will spread the gospel for me far beyond Damascus. Uh, I know that he's persecuting my people now. That's all about to change. He's about to be the one persecuted. You just watch and you just see. And indeed, these things all, all came to pass. And as we work our way through the book of Acts, we're going to see that. We're going to see how Paul saw brings the gospel to the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 13, they were ministering to the Lord. The Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have, have called them to do. And that's the work of going and planting churches. He's going to go on missions trips, telling all the Gentiles about Jesus. We're going to see Saul at the end of Acts, in Acts 24, 25, and 26, giving testimony to, to uh, Felix and Festus and Agrippa, these kings, telling them of Jesus. We'll see how Saul confronted the religious leaders of Israel. We'll see the religious leaders even coming to to Rome. We're going to see him just speaking about Jesus. We'll see the suffering that Paul faced traveling to Rome as a prisoner. And again, before we move on, I need to make a point. 
As of yet, we've heard nothing of Saul's faith. Right? From the standpoint of, of, of our story today, the jury's still out. Now, we, we have the advantage of, of whatever, literature, that we can see the end and say, oh yeah, here's what Paul is. But Ananias didn't know that. And in the midst of the story, we didn't know that. We didn't know if he was going to be authentic or not. In fact, even we're going to find out later that here is Saul and the apostles. Even like People are leery of even associating with him whether his faith is real or whether it's ingenuine or whether he's this rat going to get inside, pretend to be a Christian, and then uncover himself right, as a KGB spy. We, we don't know. Uh, but what questions may be future in our minds are established facts in God's mind. This is how, how God works. It's Isaiah 46.10. God declares the end from the beginning. Psalm 139, verse 16. He knows the number of our days before there's even one of them. And before we're even born, he knows how many days we are going to live. And Saul understood just, just God's work in his life. Listen to Galatians 1, 15 and 16. It said, God, who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace, was p- pleased to reveal his son in me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul knew very well that the plan of God was in his life, even before he was born, to be this one, to be the, the Gentile, who's gonna, this Jew who's going to carry the message to the Gentiles and all over the world. And the meeting with the Lord on the road to Damascus was just working out in history what God's plan had already established to take place. Listen, and if you're a believer in Christ today, just know that God has a similar plan for you, that before you're born, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 verse 4 says. And it's important that, that God has chosen us before we do anything. That's why our salvation is all of grace. It's not of anything that we do. It's not our smart intellect. It's only God's grace that saves us. Do you know this grace? And we as a church, we exist to enjoy this grace of God, that God has been so gracious to us, that even before we're born, right, would choose us, that he would come and interrupt into our lives miraculously so we might believe in him. Well, finally, we come to my last point this morning, healing. Verses 17 through 19, the, the healing. Right, we've seen him on the road, and we've seen these visions coming, but now comes the healing. And I think now comes the point of salvation in, in Paul's life. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, in obedience to the Lord, Brother Saul... The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me, right, these two visions, right, he appeared to you there, he's come here to me, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Here it is, right, healings, I should have had healings, not visions, just coming to my mind right now, healings physically and healing spiritually. Regain your sight, gain the Holy Spirit, and it was this moment that Paul, I think, was, was changed. We became a new creation where, where the Holy Spirit came upon him and transformed his heart of stone into a heart of flesh, where he began to see things spiritually clear, even as it says immediately, verse 18, something like scales fell from his eyes and he, remained his sight, he, and he regained his sight. And as he regained his sight, also he gained the spiritual sight, the spiritual insight that then caused him then to rise up and he was baptized in obedience to the Lord, as we see in Acts so much. We saw that in Acts chapter 8, right? Several times when, he, when Philip was in Samaria, right? They believed and they were baptized. 
And we see the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, right? He believed and he was baptized. This is the biblical pattern. You believe in Jesus and you're baptized after as in obedience to what Christ said. Yes, we did. And there was a spiritual healing, right? It's not that his baptism saved him. But his baptism was an indication that his eyes were opened spiritually and he'd come to Christ and was baptized. And taking food then, he was strengthened. And from that moment on, Saul became a mightier warrior for Christ. And we're going to see him next week in Damascus, strongly proclaiming his faith in Christ and how Jesus is that very Christ. And throughout the book of Acts, we're going to see him planting churches. On the first missionary journey, he's going to go to Pisidian Antioch and to Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. And then on other missionary journeys, he's going to go to Philippi and he's going to go to Athens and Berea and Thessalonica and Corinth and Rome. And he's going to have an influence in Jerusalem and he's going to have influence in, in Rome. And it all happened in a moment, at that moment of conversion. And indeed, I do believe that's the greatest story of conversion ever told the greatest story in the Bible. Now, before we, we end and move on, I just need to comment here about the whole aspect of conversion. It's so central to Christianity. I, I believe that this is why it is it was spoken of in Acts several times. The, the, the story of the conversion of Saul is a little bit like the four different Gospels that we have. Four different accounts of the testimony of the life of Jesus. Otherwise, right, there's just one testimony of life of Jesus. Like, who knows whether that's really true or not? But we don't have just one testimony of Jesus. We have not only two, not only three. We have four testimonies of the life of Jesus. And with the conversion of Saul, we have not only just one testimony of his conversion. He's going to speak to the king several times. He's going to speak to Felix. And he's going to speak to Agrippa about his whole conversion experience. He's going to write about it in his letters. Because God's making this point, conversion is the way that God works. To be a church is to see people converted from darkness into light. It's fundamental to what Christianity is. And I say that because in other lands, Nepal and India particularly, that I've been exposed to, it's illegal to convert to another religion. Nepal is a, is a Hindu kingdom. And there's some sway, the strong strength of the Hindus in India as well, make it illegal to be a Christian, to, to convert. You cannot change your religion, they say. And they hate this doctrine. But this is fundamental to what it means to be a Christian. It's to convert from one way into another way. So Christians find a difficult time there. Or in the Muslim world, like Gary talked to us a little bit earlier, right? Taking baptism is a huge step because you're going from one to the other and the Muslims hate that. In fact, they are. They have funerals. I I know a a Jewish gal who uh, was baptized in her faith, professing her faith in Christ. This was years ago before I was a pastor. We were involved in her life, and she came to Jesus, and she was baptized, and her dad declared her dead. And she had to work through for several years, six, seven, eight, ten years, before her dad would finally receive her back to realize that Christianity is something good. It makes her more honest, makes her happier, makes her more of a servant. And then, like, like they're one back. But even Jewish people today, when you're baptized, they're like, you're done, you're gone. People, the world hates this conversion idea. It's okay to just be nice people, but to convert, be radically changed, the world hates that. And even in our country today, the way in which this hatred for conversion is expressed is something called conversion therapy. I'm not sure if you've ever heard that before, but it is something that states are making illegal, illegal for counselors to counsel people to be converted, to be changed, and, and particularly those who are dealing with the confusion of their sexual identity. Or, or, or they claim, right, I am homosexual. <laughs> Your problem is you're committing homosexual acts. You need to turn from that. And you need to be converted and believe in Jesus. That is illegal. 
in some places in the United States. There's a push that you cannot preach conversion therapy upon other people. But I just say, church family, this is our only hope. This is what Christianity is. It's about the life of changing people. And Paul's story is really the, the greatest act of conversion. And really then the question is, right, have you known this? Have you experienced this yourself? Do you know what it is to walk in darkness and then to see the light of Christ and his, his dying upon the cross for your sins and embracing that for yourself and experiencing God giving you new desires that weren't there before. The, the God producing in you the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, etc. And God giving you a, a soft heart towards people and of the Lord. Giving you an appetite to pursue God's Word and to read His Bible. That's what God calls us to be. It's what we all ought to experience. If you haven't experienced it, I'd love to talk with you. Right? Trust in Jesus. Acts 9, we got to see the greatest story of conversion And we'll see more as we work our way through the book of Acts. So let's pray. Father, I I do thank you for this great story in the book of Acts. God, that tells the story of this man who hated you and had a heart against you. And yet you, you softened. And you brought into your kingdom. And even as he considered himself the least of all the saints... God, in actuality, God, he's been the greatest Christian who ever lived. Doing so much for the kingdom of Christ. Giving us so much of the New Testament. Being this testimony of your transforming power that you can work. And so, Lord, I pray that you would work that among us. Perhaps there are people here who don't know this. Maybe some of the children especially don't know this. Who need to look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. I pray you would break in. Saul wasn't particularly even seeking you. God, but you just broke in on his life. And I pray that you would break in on, on lives here. Um, Father, also just would pray that even as we have opportunities to be bold and to be witnesses for you, as the book of Acts is calling us to, that we would see people transformed. To believe and trust the Bible and not their own thoughts, their own philosophies, their own way of life. They want to do it on their own, which actually means they just want to pursue sinful ways. But, God, I pray that you would use us in the lives of people, in the lives of people who don't know you, God, that you would work in their lives, God, to change them for the better, God, just to know Christ and to understand and embrace and experience all the fullness of joy that comes in him. So we we look to you, God, not... Not because we have the power to do this. We look to you because we know we don't have the power to do this. And we pray you would work conversions among us. God, that we might have maybe not the greatest conversion stories, but we would have more conversion stories to be able to tell. We thank you for your son who died for us in our sins. In whose name we pray. Amen.